Wonderful, wonderful to see God's people fellowshipping together. My name is Stuart McCray. I have the joy of serving on staff here as one of the pastors. If you're a guest, thanks so much for being here with us. Uh, if you will turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, we are going to be finishing up our series that we've been looking at this wonderful chapter. And so we are in verse 31. So if you go to Romans 8 and verse 31, we're going to be looking at the rest of this chapter this morning. Well, an obvious statement is that Romans 8 falls on the heels of Romans 7. But just as a reminder, in Romans chapter 7, Paul was talking to us about his Christian experience, his post-conversion experience, and really then by extension, all of a Christian's experience of the war within, the, the, the battle against the flesh, uh, the, the battle against re remaining sin in our hearts. And, and with that, in chapter 8, Paul gives Christians, you, you and I, uh, various assurances as we pursue our sanctification, our sanctification, our conformity to the image of Jesus. And our sanctification is, is filled with the battle the remaining sin, it is filled with struggle and trials and difficulty, and Paul wants us to be assured, since God is for us, nothing can ultimately be against us. At maybe the, the height of his pastoral ministry, still in his 20s, Charles Spurgeon, the late 19th century preacher, pastor of what was ostensibly the, the first megachurch. And on the evening of October 19th, 1856, Spurgeon, still only 22 years old, preached at the nightly service and the attendance that evening was in the thousands. During one of his prayers, a, a prankster yelled out, fire! And at the ensuing panic, seven people died. 28 were seriously injured. Spurgeon never fully psychologically or emotionally recovered from that incident. And along with various illnesses and an enduring case of the gout that started at age 35, Spurgeon would struggle with various degrees of depression for the rest of his life. Spurgeon once confessed on a sudden, the thought crossed my mind, which I abhorred but could not conquer, that there was no God, no Christ, no heaven, no hell, and that my prayers were but a farce, and that I might as well have whistled to the winds or spoken to the howling waves. Spurgeon's experience and this quote from him reminds us that nearly all Christians, even those who seem strong and confident in the faith, face periods of doubt and lack assurance. Indeed, sometimes those doubts can even swell up into a, a crisis of sorts. Even Spurgeon admitted that his doubts were difficult to conquer. For most of my life, I would have told you that I never dealt with any sort of serious uh, chronic health issue, but in the late 2017 through middle end of 2021, I was plagued with debilitating headaches. Uh, rarely a week would go by where I was not just crushed. It would take days. It would knock out a week at a time. 
I, I tried everything, saw various doctors, did scans, took various medicines, saw chiropractors, and nothing for a little over three years, just crushed with chronic headaches. And then, as I said, by the middle end of 2021, God in his kindness took them away. Praise the Lord. It, it, it is indeed. But you know, in the midst of that three and a half years, assurance that God was for me was easier preached and said than believed. And I know you get that, and Paul gets that too. And so much of chapter 8 has been Paul giving us various assurance to Christians as they pursue their sanctification, their conformity to the image of Jesus. And he, he begins this chapter with no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and now he ends with no separation from the love of God in Christ. Well, let's, let's go ahead and read our passage here, starting with verse 31. Paul writes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things that come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In Romans 8, 1 through 39, Paul provides us with four Proofs that God is for us to assure us of our secure salvation. God gave up Jesus for us. God justifies us. Jesus' work for us and God's inseparable love for us. Paul knows that assurance is elusive and can be hard to take hold of when life gets tough. And so he, he means to give us proofs that God is for us. Now, these, these four proofs that God is for us are in verses 32 through 39, but Paul does the setup in verse 31. So let, let's quickly consider verse 31. And the beginning of verse 31 has this word, then, and that lets us know that this verse is connected to what came right before it. So we're going to go ahead and reread what we looked at last week, starting with verse 28. Or with verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
What then is as a result of hearing these truths, what shall we say to these things? And pause there. It's possible that these things that Paul has in mind uh, could be the truths contained in this sort of subsection of Romans going back to chapter five through chapter eight. It, it could be that he has in mind the truths that are in this chapter, chapter eight. But most certainly these things are the truths in verses 28 through 30. And there we see God's good providence for his children, working together all things for their good and God's unbreakable salvation from eternity past to eternity future. And what shall we say of these glorious truths? Second part of verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, Paul's answer is rhetorical. It's really a turn of phrase. Paul's way of summarizing God's saving work in the gospel. Now, Paul isn't saying that literally no one will ever be against God's people. Enemies and opponents of believers, both human and spiritual, are real. The point is, in the, in the end, ultimately, because God is for us, no enemy will stand victorious against us. What's more, it appears that Paul makes this really just about individuals, right? He says, who can be against us? But then his list of potential things that might separate us in verse 35 is not a who, but a what. So you see, in the mind of Paul, this is not merely a who, but it is also a what. In other words, since God is for us, nothing can be against us. And with that, Paul gives us four proofs that God is for us to give us assurance of our secure salvation. So let's look at these each in turn. The first proof that God is for us is in verse 32. Follow along as I read it. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And the proof that God is for us is God gave up Jesus for us. Now the language of not sparing is interesting in Paul's day. The translation preference of the Old Testament is the Greek and so it could be that possibly what Paul has in mind with this phrase not sparing is the account of Abraham and Isaac and there God saw Abraham willing to not spare his own son Isaac so God commanded him to not sacrifice Isaac. God spared Isaac, but God did not spare his own son. Out of love and for our sake, God did not spare his own son so that he could spare us. God the Father did not remove his wrath from his own son so that he could never, would never pour out his wrath on us. And Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to make now an argument from greater to lesser based on this truth. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also? If God was willing to do the most difficult thing, paying the most infinite price in his own son. Surely, surely, 
He is willing to pay the far less costly thing of graciously giving us all things. God delivered over his own son to spitting, taunting, beating, scourging, as well as allowing him to be nailed to a cross, pierced in the side and buried in a grave for our sake, for our benefit. So can he not? Will he not then gift us every other blessing that we could possibly need? Having refused to withhold his own son, will he now withhold lesser things? No. God gave up his greatest for us, his own son. So surely he will also with him graciously give us all things. And what are all things? All things are not material blessings, but from the context of what Paul just talked about and what he will talk about, all things are all that is necessary for the completion of our sanctification and the sure fulfillment of our glorification. Assurance can waver in the face of trials and Trouble, doubt can quickly well up in distress and difficulty. But Paul's proof that God is for us is see the cross. Look at what God has done for you in Christ. Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane said, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. The cross is the greatest expression that God is for us. At the supreme cost of his own son, the cross testifies that God is for you. He loves you. And if he did not spare his own son while we were enemies, will he treat us less lovingly now that we are his children? No. The cross is the measure of God's love for you. And what's more, since God did not spare his own son for you, we can be assured that God will also, with him, graciously give, it, uh, give us every other lesser thing that we need for life and godliness and future glorification. God is on our side. Be assured, your heavenly father will come through. So the first proof that God is for us God gave up Jesus for us. The second proof that God is for us to assure us of our secure salvation is in verse 33. Follow as I read it. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And so the second proof that God is for us is God justifies us. Now, it's, it's interesting. Normally, when Paul talks about justification, God's justification of believers, it's, it's in terms of past tense when a believer trusted in Jesus. But here, Paul puts it in terms of present ongoing, right? It's God who justifies. Well, why is that? Paul wants these Christians to be assured that God's past legal declaration of them, not guilty, unchangeably holds true. 
in an ongoing way, even out into eternity. And because they can be assured of that, they don't need to fear God's final judgment, nor any present accusation that is leveled against them, for, for which is many for the Christians in Rome. I think one commentator's insight is helpful here. Paul is affirming that the marginalization and mistreatment of believers by the wider society is wrong, and that God will not only declare them free from punishment when he sits as their judge on the final day, but that even now, in the present, God declares all accusations against them unwarranted. Now, Paul leverages the description of Christians as God's elect. He could have used any description here, of which there are many to describe Christians, but he very intentionally chooses to describe them as God's elect. And the reason is, is he wants to remind them that God chose them before they did anything good or bad. God chose them before anything good or bad happened to them. God chose them before any accusation was made against them. God chose them before the foundation of the world. And, and of course, they should be reminded that Paul just told them in verse 30, those whom God predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. God's justification of his people is a sure promise for those whom he has predestined and called. And with this in view, the Christians in Rome are to be assured that their right standing with God is secure. No one can successfully bring a charge against them. Family, accusations will come our way. That, that's not what Paul is actually talking about. Accusations will come our way from without, maybe even indeed from within our own fickle hearts. Accusations will come, and none least of which will be by the accuser, Satan himself. Satan's greatest weapon against us is to bring our sins before us as evidence that we don't stand right before God. You see, Satan wants to downplay God's grace and magnify our sin with notions like, he, you did what? There's nothing that you could have done worse. How shameful. God is so disappointed in you. Oh, you've, you've surely ruined your relationship with God. He will never forgive you. See, family, Satan accuses us with the goal of us becoming unsure about our relationship with God. If he, if he, can, if he can sow seeds of doubt, and if those seeds can blossom and flower into unbelief, he's got us. He wants us to hide in shame from God Believe in the lie that God surely must be done with us after all we've done to him. But our Heavenly Father, through Paul, wants us to be assured. No accusation can successfully be made against God's elect. 
God the Father chose you in eternity past before you did anything good or bad. And because he chose you, he called you. And because he called you, he justified you. And as I said before, I'll say again, your, your right standing with God is not based on how you are doing at any given moment. Your right standing with God is now and forever based on you having been gifted Christ's perfect righteousness. Be assured. No accusation can successfully be made against God's elect. Family, the, the second proof that God is for us is God justifies us. The third proof is in verse 34, as long as I read it. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? And so the third proof that God is for us is Jesus' work for us. Now the question appropriately falls on the heels of the previous, previously it was no accusation can successfully be made against us because it is God who justifies us. And, and because of that true reality for the believer, Paul asked, who is to condemn? Now, condemnation is a legal term, just like justification is. It's not merely the pronouncement of guilt. It's also the punishment that follows a guilty verdict. And condemnation is the death sentence, but not physical, here spiritual and eternal. And Paul asks then, if God justifies us, declares us not guilty, who is to condemn us? And Paul then further rehearses why no one can condemn us when he writes, Christ Jesus is the one who died. We know that in Christ's death, he took our sin and paid its penalty by absorbing God's wrath. And because of his substitutionary, atoning sacrifice for our sin, there is no condemnation left for us. Amen. But, huh, as if that wasn't enough, Paul continues, more than that, who was raised? More than his death, his resurrection. Listen, if Christ stayed dead, then he proved himself to be the another dead man. And that his and that his death accomplished nothing. But death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. Jesus was raised. Romans 1.4 says this, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness by his resurrection from the grave. In Jesus' resurrection, there is a declaration made. He's the Son of God. And not only that, but Romans 4.25 says Jesus was raised for our justification. His resurrection vindicated that his death accomplished the full payment for our debt of sin. And Paul doesn't stop with Jesus' resurrection. He goes on to tell us, where Jesus is and what he is doing. 
Jesus at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, because Jesus accomplished his work on the cross as evidenced by his resurrection, and because he rose, he is seated at the right hand of God. And there, at the right hand of God, Jesus is presently interceding for God's people, his brothers, his sisters. Jesus is the great high priest for believers in the very presence of God. In the Old Testament, intercession was mainly the function of priests, but in contrast to the earthly priests, Jesus' priestly ministry is described like this in Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but... Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost completely those who draw near to God through him since, and, and here's why he's able to completely save those who draw near to God through him, he always lives to make intercession for them. Unlike Old Testament priests who always stood doing sacrificial work that never finished, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God because his sacrificial work, done. Yet Jesus, the great high priest, still carries on another crucial priestly role, and that of intercessory prayer on behalf of his people. So family, what is Jesus doing right now on behalf of God's people, on behalf of his brothers and sisters? What is Jesus doing right now on behalf of you and I? Right now. Right now, Jesus is presently without ceasing and effectively interceding for us. The same Savior who died for us is now interceding for us. Jesus' intercessory ministry is described like this in 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Being an advocate is like being a counsel for the defense in a legal context. It's the person who intercedes on behalf of another. We have nothing that we can plead before God to gain us forgiveness. But Jesus does, and he acts as our advocate entering his plea. I mean, Hebrews 7, we, we read earlier, Jesus' intercessory ministry is why he's able to completely save those who draw near to God through him. So family, when, when you and I sin, Jesus takes up our case and pleads on our behalf with the, with the Father. And he says, he says, this one has sinned, but his sins are forgiven by my blood. I have taken their penalty. Their sins are washed clean. They have my righteousness. 
Brothers and sisters, when you sin, know for sure you are not alone. You have an advocate that is with you right now, interceding on your behalf with the Father. Be assured, who's condemned? No one. Those who are by faith united to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are not and will never be found guilty, condemned for their sin. And not only that, but Jesus presently intercedes for each of us, a ministry that assures that our salvation is secure. Not one pronouncement of guilt, nor one punishment for sin that follows a guilty verdict will ever be successfully made against us because Jesus died for us, rose for us, and is seated at the right hand of God right now interceding for us. The third proof that God is for us, Jesus' work for us. The fourth and final proof that God is for us to assure us of our secure salvation is found in verses 35 through 39. Follow along as I read it here. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the fourth proof that God is for us is God's inseparable love for us. God's Inseparable love for us is brought up three times in these four verses, and maybe whatever it's worth, it's in the odd verses, 35 and 37 and 39. Once again, Paul starts with the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? To which he asks, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, could these separate us from the love of Christ? Commentator F.F. Bruce notes, the list of difficulties all the items except the last are found in 2 Corinthians 11, 26-27, and in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, where Paul lists those hazards he himself has encountered in his apostolic labors. All these, then, Paul himself has experienced and is able to prove for himself that they are quite incapable of interfering with his enjoyment of Christ's love. And the last, the sword, the death by execution, Paul was defined overcome for him in the love of Christ at the end of his life. Now in verse 36, Paul quotes Psalm 44, 22. And the verse in this Psalm is God's people crying out to him for help. They're suffering, they are experiencing persecution, and it seems like God is withholding, like God is not responding. And, and in the very next verse of the psalm, they cried, awake, why are you sleeping, O God? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Now bring up the Old Testament. Paul wants to remind these Christians that their experience is not unique. They, they are not alone. 
Indeed, they should not be surprised by their experiences of suffering and persecution. Suffering is, in fact, typical for God's people. As one commentator puts it, from Paul's point of view, this is not a token of their abandonment, but proof of God's oversight and their inclusion in his work in the world. Jesus' celebrated call for his followers to take up their cross is not always metaphorical. I mean, the Christians in Rome have experienced some of what Paul laid out there in verse 35, and now they're to be reminded that they're not alone in their experiences. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? Paul's answer, verse 37, no. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paradoxically, paradoxically, what Paul makes clear, instead of all these things being what separate believers from Christ's love, it is rather in all these things that believers become more than conquerors. The, the phrase, we are more than conquerors in the original language is actually one word, and it means prevail completely. Maybe, maybe we could restate that as we are super conquerors. What's more, the triumph isn't attributed to their self-determination or personal strength. No, their, their triumph is attributed through him who loved us. You see, brothers and sisters, when trials and temptations would separate us from the love of Christ, it is then in all these things that Christ's love for his people intervenes, making us super conquerors in those very things. The, the promise of Romans 8.28 should just be reverberating in our hearts and minds. God works together all things to conform us to the image of his son and to persevere us to glorification. Amen. Well, Paul goes on in his proof that God is for us and his inseparable love for us. Verse 38, for, and the word for means that Paul is going to explain why he's sure there'll be super conquerors through Christ who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's surety, his firm and settled conviction that they will be super conquerors through Christ who loved us is nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now the list of things in verse 38 through 39 are both who and what, and Paul confidently asserts that not one of these can separate us from God's love in Christ. Here's how one commentator explains the list. Not any state of existence, death nor life. Not the spirit world, that's nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers. No, no event, that is no things present or things to come. No obstacle in the universe from top to bottom, right? No, nor height, nor depth. Not anything God created. And then that, that final item, anything else in all creation includes you. 
That is, if you are a Christian, you cannot separate yourself from God's love for you in Christ. Last week, we sung the hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. And the first bit goes like this. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. And this hymn well proclaims where the surety of our salvation lies. It, it well proclaims where Paul knew the surety of our salvation lies. Brothers and sisters, the surety of our salvation lies not in self, but in the God who loves us in Christ. And family, we are super conquerors now, not by escaping suffering. We are super conquerors now in all these things through Christ who loved us. And listen, this isn't a promise with conditions. If you do this, then God will do that. As if our loving God twists his arm into doing something that he wouldn't have done otherwise. We, we love God because he first loved us. We don't earn God's secure love, nor do we maintain God's secure love. God's inseparable love for us in Christ is a, is a blood-bought reality, promise, purchased at the cross. God is for us in Christ, so nothing can separate you from his love. I, I don't know all that is going on with each one of you. I, I know, do know that many of you, though, are struggling and going through trials and you probably don't feel like a super conqueror most of the time. You're probably well aware of all the ways you've fallen short as a spouse, a parent, a friend, a neighbor, a child of God, but your heavenly father is faithful. And he will bring his work in you to completion. God is working together all things for your ultimate good. Brothers and sisters, when you're struggling with sin and tempted to despair, listen, your, your hope is not found in how firm a grip you have on Christ. Your hope is found in how firm a grip he has on you. There's nothing formed against you that God won't use to make you a super conqueror in that very thing through Christ who loves you. Nothing can separate you from God's inseparable love. Your relationship with God is secure through Christ who loved you. The Bible is the greatest book ever written. It contains the greatest books ever written and, and arguably the greatest is Romans and if that be the case, 
Arguably, its greatest chapter is eight. It's often considered the, the, the Mount Everest of the Bible, the, the, the summits reaching its top point and seeing the, all the amazing, glorious truths therein. We, we started this chapter with no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and now we end it with no separation of God's love for you in Christ. And in between justification and glorification is a life filled with trouble, filled with hardship and difficulty, filled with the war within, the battle against remaining sin. And assurance is what we need. We all face periods of doubt and lack assurance. And Paul knows it. And he wants you, God's child, to be assured that God is for you. So he gives us these, these proofs again and again and again and again to give us assurance of our secure salvation. And brothers and sisters, these proofs are facts of the gospel. In other words, in other words these proofs are not commands to be obeyed, but truth claims to be believed. None of these proofs are a do. They're all a done in Christ. By God's grace, we just need to take hold of these truths and rest in the goodness of them. They're ours in Christ. Brothers and sisters, God is for us. So nothing can ultimately be against us. God gave up Jesus for us, and therefore he will also, with him, graciously give us all we need for life and godliness. God justifies us, so no one will ultimately be able to bring a successful charge against us, God's elect. Jesus worked for us. No one can condemn us to hell on judgment day because Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us and Jesus is presently interceding for us. God's inseparable love for us means that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And we have rock solid assurances that our salvation is secure. Look to the cross, be sure. Rest assured, God is for us. Let's take hold of this together. Let's believe in this together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in your kindness, you have revealed these things to us. If, if Romans 8 was not here, we would not know these things. But in your mercy and grace, you have gifted to us the insight and understanding of, of what you have accomplished for us in Christ. We pray, would you help us to take hold of these things? We, we are in desperate need of your help. We, we just cannot do these things on our own. Please help us to, to live in the good of these truths to believe them. They are true in Christ. Father, I also pray for those that are here today and, and are not trusting in Christ. 
Father, that you would do the work that only you can do. Father, would you save them so that they would know that these are true of them too. They trust in Christ. We love you. We thank you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.